Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name on his father's name, had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like a roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps, and they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They followed the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into a cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God, who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold in his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come for the, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had a charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him, you had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vines, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles, and for a distance of 1,600 stadia. If I've uh, not met you, if you've not met me, I'm, I'm John, I'm one of the, the elders at the church. And it's great to be here together. We're in the book of Revelation. Uh, we're taking each uh, section throughout the book, and today we're in Revelation 14. And what Callum has just read is the end of a little section in the book which begs of us this question, if this works. Not sure it does. Um, but, but the question is this, which God are you worshipping? Which God are you worshipping? That's 12 to 14 
of this book. Because we all worship some god or other, don't we? Whether it's the, the true god of the Bible or a false god or an idol, to use the biblical language. If you've been walking the Christian life for some time, you will know that every day we struggle not to worship modern-day idols like, like money, success, people's approval, sex, comfort, or anything else from the pantheon of gods that our society looks to in order to find purpose, satisfaction, and indeed salvation. But there's another kind of false god that particularly Christians are at risk of worshipping, and we don't really mention this idol very much at all. This is the idol we make when we come to worship the God of the Bible, but only after changing him a little bit. You know, taking off the bits that we don't really like and overemphasizing the bits that we do. We remake God into our own image and we are happy with the idol our hearts and minds have fashioned. But we really, really shouldn't be. As we've seen over 12 to 14, worshipping any idol, whether it looks a little bit like the God of the Bible or not, actually leads us away from where true purpose, satisfaction and importantly salvation can be found. So which God are you worshipping? I guess the reason I'm asking that question now is, is threefold. First of all, it's because last week Johnny, Johnny showed us from chapter 13 that the warning there was of the beast, right? That this symbol of Satan's work of seduction in people's lives. And what did that work of seduction look like? Well, it, it, it said there that Satan deceived the inhabitants of the earth and ordered them to set up an image, same word for idol there, in honour of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lives. Notice how the false god that Satan lures people towards sounds just like Jesus. Wounded, but now yet lives. And yet this is a copy, an image, an idol, a false god. And so you see the warning. We can be deceived into thinking that we're worshipping Jesus the true God, when actually we're worshipping his shadow, a false God who's just similar enough for us to be deceived. So that's the first reason. The second reason I'm asking this question now is because the whole point of chapter 14 is to ensure that Christians persevere in worshipping the true God, right? Simple enough. But thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, I'm asking this question, which God are, are we worshipping? Because Revelation 14, I'm not sure if some people are up dropping kids off or whatever, to have it in front of you. Revelation 14 contains truths, particularly around judgment and hell, which our modern Western culture just cannot tolerate, despite being universally accepted across history. This means that when we come to difficult passages like Revelation 14, we are more likely than ever to reject the God, the God of the Bible as he really is and create a false God in our mind who is similar enough to the biblical God, but one who is more palatable to us and one who is therefore an idol of our making. So the irony of this is that the whole message of chapters 12 to 14 in Revelation is that people can be deceived into, into worshipping a false god, and so we must worship the true God, and yet it's these very chapters where we are most likely to do the thing that it warns against. Maybe that makes you feel uneasy or afraid or unsure. Well, if so, I want to really encourage us this morning that God's authoritative word is his gift and our greatest joy 
Because through his word, we can worship the true God. We can know him fully. Or not fully, we, you know what I mean. We can know what he's revealed to us. But to do so, we need to take on a humble posture before this passage. Through the prophet Isaiah, God famously says, these are the people I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. So as we look at a really tough passage, along with others in Revelation so far, humility, contrition, doesn't look like having no questions, but it does look like no longer standing over God's word in judgment of it, creating the God we want to find there, but rather it looks like placing ourselves under God's word and allowing it to judge us and our view of who God is and what is true and false in his world. So with that posture, I ask the question again, which God are you worshipping? Because in Revelation 14, we're going to see the God who brings people into eternal salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. But we're also going to see the same God who does this through the eternal judgment of those who reject the Lord Jesus. Eternal salvation, eternal judgment. So as we jump in, you can pray for me, but for us at large, that we would be humble in spirit and that we would tremble at his word. So in that vein, let's start with um, eternal salvation. So have your Bibles or phone Bibles open at chapter 14. You'll see that the, the good news is that the passage starts with what we'll be more comfortable with, eternal salvation through Jesus. In verse 1, John sees this vision of a lamb who is Jesus standing on Mount Zion, the heavenly city in front of 144,000 people who are worshipping Jesus in song. Now, we, we can't get hung up on this 144,000 people, right? There are cults around the world, you may know of some, who essentially built their whole identity on the fact that this is the sum total of people who will be saved um, forever. But this would contradict directly what John has already told us in chapter 7, which is that the saved people of God are a crowd of people which no one can count, right? And of course, we know that numbers are really important in Revelation. We've seen 12 being the number of the fullness of God's people, right? 12 tribes of Israel, New Testament, 12 apostles of Jesus. It's the kind of fullness of God's people. And now, a thousand in Revelation is a lot more general. It basically means loads, Okay, that's the number for loads. So what you've got here, and I'm going to make my maths teachers proud here, you've got 12 times 12 times 1,000. What's the point? The point is that look at the fullness of God's people. There are loads of them. No one can count them. Well, there are 144,000. No, there are loads of them. Saved in Jesus. And just as those who worshipped the beast last week in chapter 13, do you remember they had this symbolic mark on their forehead, 666? Well, did you see what these worshippers have on their foreheads? Verse 1, the name of the Lamb and the name of his Father. Do you know that this morning, if you're trusting in Jesus, that the Holy Spirit has stamped the name of Jesus and God the Father on you? A symbol, to be sure, but one that shows that he has claimed you, that you belong to him, that you are safe in him. So it's absolutely no wonder that these people are worshipping the true God, the Lamb, who, verse 4, purchased them from among mankind. Note that they aren't there because they achieved it themselves, but because they were purchased by God through the Lamb's blood, shed for them at the cross for the forgiveness of sins. 
I point that out because when we read in verse 4 that these are those who did not defile themselves with women, or verse 5 that no lie was found in their mouths and they are blameless, we so often make the mistake of thinking that somehow these people earned their salvation. And that's wrong, I think, for two reasons. First of all, it's wrong because in Revelation, moral purity is a symbol for those who actually remain faithful to the Lord Jesus. Moral purity is a picture of spiritual fidelity. So you've always got two worshippers going on, those who worship the beast and those who worship the lamb. These are those who were spiritually faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, or to use the the language of, of Hebrews, who held fast to their profession. But secondly, they're blameless because when Christ cleanses us from our sins, we become blameless. He takes our sin. We take his perfection, moral and spiritual. This is how the Father sees his people in Christ this morning on earth, but also into eternity, blameless. So what you've got here is a picture of what God does. He buys us back from sin, death and hell unto eternal salvation. So our songs of praise and worship to Jesus that we've sung already and we'll sing after this today even, will ring out across the heavenly courts into eternity. The true God offers people eternal salvation in Jesus. Which brings us to the flip side of the coin, eternal judgment. Eternal judgment. And you've got that little middle passage there, if you've got one of the church Bibles, it's verses 6 to 13, and John sees there three angels, okay? Just means messengers, actually. The word there is just messengers. He sees three messengers. We'll come back to the first messenger in verses 6 to 7 later, but the second angel there in verse 8 pronounces God's judgment over all earthly power, which is set up against God's rule. Here it's described as Babylon, okay? That was... That was understood by by Revelation's first readers as Rome, but of course it stands for all of the abuse of power and sinful abuse of power in our world. God promises judgment on the horrific and oppressive reigns of evil dictators. He he decrees judgment on the horrific abuse that you experienced as a child or as an adult. He decrees judgment on the political manoeuvres to silence God's words in our society and, of course, the thief preying on the vulnerable. This is good news that our God cares about injustice and inequality. He has promised to bring such deeds of darkness into light and mete out its just punishment on those responsible. That is very good news. If you don't see that as good news, you've never experienced injustice. But do you know what? Most of us can probably distance ourselves from humanity's worst crimes described there. Perhaps what the third angel in verse 9 says gets a lot more personal for each and every one of us. Let me read what this angel says in verses 9 to 11, and I don't do so with any gladness in my heart. Verse 9. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment 
will rise forever and ever. Last week in, in chapter 13, we saw that those who worship the beast are, quote, all the inhabitants of the earth. You see, sociologists group humanity in different ways, but according to the Bible, the best way to group humanity is not according to socioeconomic group or language or race or profession. No, it's by who we worship. Either we worship the beast, standing for any false god, any one who's not the true God, or we worship the true God and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're told here that awaiting those who do not worship the Lord Jesus is eternal judgment. The picture of burning sulfur here is an Old Testament picture from Genesis 11 of God's anger at human pride and rebellion against him, Tower of Babel. So too is the language of drinking the cup or the wine of God's fury, an Old Testament picture of his wrath against sin. And please, when we, when we read these, we can't make the mistake of saying, oh, well, that's, that's just a metaphor, that's just a picture. Because the way the biblical metaphors work, they use pictures to show us spiritual realities, to help us understand spiritual realities. So coming to God's word humbly this morning means wrestling with the God who, verse 11, judges eternally all humanity who continue in their rebellion against his son. But what do we do do with that? What do you you make of, of this God? I think it's totally understandable that when we read something like this, we we naturally revert back to the God who we think should be there in our text. You know, the one that we have tailored in our mind, the one that we've created with our hands. Or do you know, sometimes people say, oh, but think about Jesus. We might appeal to Jesus. Surely Jesus didn't say anything like this. And yet actually what we find is Jesus spoke more about an eternal hell than any other biblical figure, including Old Testament uh, prophet or New Testament apostle. In Mark 9, for example, Jesus says, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. See, Jesus uses different imagery, but he teaches the exact same truth of eternal judgment. Now, before coming to God's defence, which we like to do, I think the Bible gives us two appropriate responses to the reality of God's eternal judgment. Romans Romans 3.19 is one where God kind of graciously warns us. It says that God graciously warns us so that every mouth may be silenced. Our first response is silence, not words. Accusing God, justifying ourselves, or trying just to worm our way out of the reality of what God's word says. Just silence. The second response, I think, is weeping. As today is Halloween, the world around us is not silent, but it's actually celebrating all things that are dark and evil. 
We relish in the beast's work in the world. Satan's clear work of seduction that we see in Revelation 13 that we saw last week. But in in Luke 19, when Jesus looks over Jerusalem and he sights... Can you turn this down a little bit, guys? When when, when, when he sees in Luke 19 um, Jerusalem and he sights God's fair judgment over the people, he doesn't delight in it, he cries. He literally weeps. That's the most loving man to ever walk the planet. You know, f- facing the reality of judgment and communicating it is not unloving, not of God and not of us. It would be the supreme act of evil for me to stand up here with this text in front of us and say, do you, do you know what? God's judgment doesn't exist. No, in love, we speak openly about it, just as Jesus did. But when we do... We just won't have grasped its truth if we do so without tears. We won't love people if we don't do it without tears. Silence and tears. But of course it's right, I think, perhaps to say something about why we find the truth of hell so unpalatable. There may be more reasons, but I've got three reasons why I think this might be hard for us. The first is that we fail to understand the holiness of God, the blazing furnace of his perfect justice. God can only do what is right. And even our sense that eternal judgment can't be fair, well, that sense of right and wrong, fallen as it is, comes from being made in the image of the perfect God of justice. And when any wrongdoing comes into contact with this perfectly just God, by the perfection of his character, he cannot sweep it under the carpet. So even if you can't get your head around how hell can be right, here is something to hold on to, that that God only does what is fair and right and good. The second reason that I think this is hard for us is that we fail to grasp the severity of sin. We conceive of sin as naughty little things, little peccadilloes. But sin is like looking into the face of our majestic creator who's given us life and breath and it's like slapping him in the face before spitting at him. Incidentally, the very thing that we did as human beings when we actually looked into the face of our creator before Jesus' execution. We slapped him and we spat at him. It's a picture, or better than, that is a better picture of, than any of what we do when we sin. And it requires punishment. But the third and perhaps most important reason why this is hard is that we just don't believe God's clear word to us that all human beings, ourselves, our friends, our families, those we pass on the street, are all sinners. We are all cosmic traitors of this majestic God in and of ourselves. Romans 3, famous verse, says that all have turned away from him. All. You see, for for people who feel their sin most deeply, it's far easier for them to understand how God could judge us. For them, it's far harder for them to understand how God could save any of us. But it's when we see ourselves and listen to our society that we are all basically good people, that God's judgment will never make sense. But even in the way I phrase that, I think we're at risk, I'm at risk here, of doing something we all do when we recreate God in our own image. We're at risk, I think, of of separating out different parts of God's character. 
So you've got God's grace and salvation over here, and you've got his justice and judgment over here. But, but, but God's perfect character just can't be divided like that. Indeed, God's salvation and God's judgment are two sides of the very same coin of his character. God never saves people apart from his judgment. That is, he saves people through his judgment. And we don't have, to take, we don't have time to take kind of line by line apart here, but that is exactly what we see in our last little section, verses 14 to 20. In 14 to 16, John sees one like a son of man, referring probably to Jesus, going out to gather the grain of God's people unto salvation. While in the second half of that, simultaneously another angel is described here as going out to gather the grapes, representing those who do not worship the true God for judgment in the winepress of God's wrath to be judged, verse 20, outside of the city. That is, outside of God's heavenly dwelling place where the fullness, all 144,000, are gathered worshipping the Lord Jesus. See, God's salvation isn't apart from his judgment. Now, his salvation is brought through his judgment on sin. We can't siphon off the parts of God's character that we like and those we don't. We can't have salvation without judgment. Because after all, what are we saved from if it isn't from his anger at sin? You see, the call of this chapter and the whole section, verses 12 to 14, is summed up in verse 7, where that first angel that we said we look at later goes out to the world proclaiming the gospel, the good news. And what is the good news? Well, verse 7 Here is the command, worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. That is, worship the true God, not an imitation, not a copy or an image, or one that we've created in our minds or with our hands, and which Satan will do his best every single day to lure us towards. No, worship this God who saves people through and from his judgment. Well, just to bring it full circle, let me ask you again. Is this God, the God who brings salvation through judgment, is this the God you are worshipping? Perhaps you're thinking, do you know what? No, it isn't. To be honest, I don't like, I don't like this God. But at the same time, you fear the warning of Revelation 14 to not worship a different God to the one who's presented here, so you feel stuck. What do you do? Well, let me make an outrageous claim. However we may feel emotionally, the God who brings salvation through judgment is exactly the God who fits the hole in the heart of your humanity. He is the one that both you and me long to be true. What do I mean by that? Well, don't we all cry out for justice? And yet we know deep down that if justice is actually brought, then by that standard, we will face condemnation for the things that our sins require justice for. And so then we flip to the other side and we we long for God's forgiveness of those sins 
that actually required condemnation. And yet for God to forgive us, he'd have to give up his justice that we longed for on the other side by sweeping us in under the carpet. He'd have to overlook more scarily the evils done to us. And so before us stands an impossible puzzle for us humans to resolve. Which God do we want? Do we want the God of justice or do we want the God of forgiveness? Because we can't have both. A God who is both just and who turns a blind eye to sin just doesn't make sense and indeed doesn't exist. So we try to solve the puzzle in our minds by conjuring up a God who will deal with evil and yet who will really forgive my sins. And our best solution to this conundrum is to create a God who will judge the really bad people. But as for me and my housemates and my colleagues or friends and families who, you know, aren't perfect and yet try their best to love people and be kind and do what's right, well, surely can God, God can save us whilst condemning those really bad people. And so the idol God of our minds is a God who welcomes people, forgiving what we conceive as small little sins on the one condition that we're not too bad. And that, we don't do enough, and that we do enough good to kind of tip the balance in our favour. But brothers and sisters, this is the false God that every religion, from parts of Roman Catholicism to Islam, even in our atheistic worldviews, have created. You know, what we do at the moment, we ourselves play the role of God by decreeing who's in and who's out based essentially on how good or bad we are, by how good our, our views or how bad our views are on the environment or sexuality or whatever the modern creed of the day is. We do exactly the same thing. But friends, here's the best news in the universe. And if you've drifted off, here's where to tune back in. The God who saves or condemns us on the basis of how righteous or unrighteous we are in ourselves is a lie out of the pit of hell. He is a false God who Satan, Revelation 13, lures us to every single day. And even better than knowing that this God is false is knowing that the true and living God is wholly different. Because the God of the Bible rejects any view that some might be good enough for heaven. He is clear that none are righteous, not even one, Romans 3. And what our minds cannot solve regarding God being both just and gracious, well, the infinite wisdom of God has solved that puzzle, achieving it in Jesus Christ. Namely, that in him, God can offer the very worst of sinners deserving of the very fiercest judgment, that he can offer that person full pardon without compromising one dot of his perfect justice. And how has he managed that? Well, it's by the cross. He's managed it by the cross of Christ. Because the night before his execution, Jesus cried out both in human anguish and in willing obedience. He says, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. You see, Jesus was staring down the reality of verse 10 of Revelation 14. He was talking about the cup of God's wrath against sin. On the, on the cross, Jesus willingly drank to the dregs every last drop of God's wrath against us. 
He took on himself, verse 20 of Revelation 14, where he was trampled in the winepress outside the city walls of Jerusalem and his blood flowed out of the press so that you and I would never ever face God's condemnation of our sins. You see, at the cross, we have the clearest picture of the gods that we Christian worship. We see a God whose wrath and whose grace can never be separated because at the cross, God in Christ lovingly bore his own anger at our sins so that he has nothing but a warm embrace and fatherly smile for you this morning. He has solved the puzzle that we could never solve. He is a God who at the cross poured out his anger on himself, which simultaneously displayed his perfect judgment of your sin while lovingly and graciously achieving your forgiveness and eternal welcome into his kingdom. What a God! That is why verse 13 of our passage says, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now. The dead are blessed. (laughs) What? Well, because God is ready to welcome, after our death, us fully into his eternal kingdom with no anger left for any of our sins. Do you see how infinitely kind and just and gracious and forgiving and wise and perfect is our God? Would you prefer a different God? (laughs) Perhaps you'd prefer one who isn't angry at evil, who shrugs his shoulders at sins. Well, a guy called Miroslav Volf, a Christian theologian, was someone who would have once upon a time preferred that God. He was a man who thought that the idea of wrath just wasn't appropriate for God. Surely God was a God of love, he said. But then he experienced the evil atrocities of his homeland in Yugoslavia, where over 200,000 people of his country people were violently slaughtered. And listen to his conclusions about God as he reflected on those things that he saw. Quote, How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I now saw that to believe that, I would have to believe in a God who wasn't angry at the world's evil. And this is key. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. Friends, this is our God. As a closing remark, I just want to ask you, where are you in this passage? Where are you in Revelation 14? It's not always the best question to ask in a Bible passage, but it's the one I'm asking now, because I think we're here. And let me put it to you that as we sit under God's word to us this morning, we are found in verses 6 and 7. John sees an angel who, quote, had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on earth. That is us. This gospel, this good news, is that the true God has removed his wrath from you and born it himself in the person of Jesus. He has saved you eternally through his judgment of your sins at the cross. So which God are you worshipping? Verse 7 says, worship this God. 
Surely we could do nothing else. Because when we take hold of the infinite grace and love and justice and wisdom of this God, we find ourselves, I think even this morning, numbered among the 144,000, praising the Lamb of God who is this God. This God who has saved us eternally. So why don't I pray? And we can do that right now as we sing. Heavenly Father, we are silent before you. Father, when we think of your just anger at sin, we know that we deserve to be in the wine press. We know that what happened on the cross should have happened to us. And yet, Father, by your grace and your majestic kindness in Christ, you displayed your perfect justice while simultaneously welcoming us into your eternal kingdom as a father welcomes his child. Father, you are worthy of our praise this morning. And so as we lift up our hearts and our minds and our voices to you, Lord, we pray that, Father, what happens here would happen in our lives as we are numbered among the 144,000, praising the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, into eternity. We pray that he would be glorified from our lips and from our hearts right now and into this week and for the rest of our lives. We pray for him. Amen.